Hey, I'm going to read um, from 1 Peter chapter 5. We're going to uh, spend some time in the Word. And um, I really believe that the Lord puts his people together through the gospel of Jesus. And when our lives are messed up and we're entrapped with our sin, the Holy Spirit convicts us and the gospel, the good news of it comes to us. And some of the other ways that God does this is by his word, that when our lives are fractured and our, our, our desires are divided, that God sends his word. Um, when he formed the earth, he just spoke and everything came to be. And I want us to have that same conviction that when God's word goes out, that it can actually change us and make us new and make us different. And so I'm pleading uh, with the spirit that he would do that now through our time. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open up First uh, Peter chapter five and I'll read through verse 11. And so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but by being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears to you, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we come now in desperate need to hear from you. They don't need to hear from a man, but they need to hear from the Messiah. They don't need to hear from me per se, but from the Lord who loves them far more than, than I do. I do pray now that your people would be built up and challenged and convicted and encouraged by your word. It is powerful in and of itself. And so would you speak through your servant for your glory and honor for Jesus' sake. Amen. All right, so um, we're, uh, we're kind of in our season where we're kind of working through a few, book, a few passages in the Bible where we're thinking through um, how to care for the body of Christ here at Redeemer. And this is one of, one of my favorite passages in the Bible. It's something that I come to regularly as a pastor just to be encouraged and, and to be reminded of the task that is before me. And I will say that I'm not going to do work through the entirety of the text, but there was a reason that I sort of added verses 6 through 11, because I don't think Peter forgets uh, the, the importance of elders. I, I actually think that there's sort of this handing off, so to speak, that God entrusts us to do a certain thing so that right there in the end, that when God's people persevere and finish, that Christ himself will restore and confirm and strengthen and establish. 
And so I think Peter is kind of keeping with that same thought. So a few weeks, if you were here with us a few weeks ago, we talked about uh, shepherding groups and wanting to put our members who are under our care, our oversight, and groups where our elders, our own elders from this very own church were cared for and shepherd you. And here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that we don't do that. I think there are ways in which we, sh we shepherd. I think when our session meets, I think when committees meet, I think when we administer the sacraments, when we are before you in Sunday school, I think there are numerous ways that I would, con I would say that this session is actively shepherding the flock. I think we're adding something to that dynamic by wanting to sort of divide the congregation up and, and have an elder over that group so that we're, you, you guys have access and you, you care for. And so what I want to do, I, I think that practice of, of me as the senior pastor, whatever that means, right, uh, telling you last week that we're going to divide up the shepherding load, I, I'm, I can imagine that for some of you that that is like, okay, what? Like, like I, I think that idea is unheard of. And, I, and I'll go ahead and say it, that I think working through shepherding groups and the principles and the purpose, that it's a new thing. And any new thing is going to have to have a period of adjustment. And so we're going to have to work through what works, what doesn't. We're going to be getting feedback, and we're going to be working through it and listening. And so I just want to put that out there, that, that this is a, an art and not a science. What I mean by that is that, that I think there's going to be a lot of freedom in how we do this and over time we'll do it together. But I can imagine that the idea of doing this is foreign. Here's why it's foreign. Because I think some of you, like one family I'm thinking of in particular, they moved in down the street and this was the closest church. And so they just came to Redeemer. And they, they, they have no idea what elders are and what elders do. They have no idea what deacons are. They have no idea what it means to be Presbyterian. So this whole idea of what I'm doing or what we're doing is completely foreign. I know it's also foreign because some of you come out of churches where, hey, your, your leadership structure, that, that maybe it wasn't in a group of men. Maybe you had a presiding bishop, and every time you had annual conference, that bishop made appointments. And every year during this time of year, you kind of worried if your pastor would be coming back, right? That's a whole different way to lead, right? Or maybe that you've been grown up in a church where leadership has been in the hands of a pastor and his wife and then their kids, right? And they kind of have, have all the authority and make all the decisions. Or maybe you've grown up in a church where you have had elders and they've been detached or abused power, you name it. I think for all of those reasons, this whole idea of being led by a group of elders, it's, it, it can be foreign, it can be hard, it can be... Uh, in, in some ways, it can, can catch us off guard. And so what I want to do is sort of go back to the Bible. And, and, and what I want to do is sort of ask a few questions about this text that I think should ease our hearts and minds. We should be able to rest in the ways in which God Almighty has chosen to lead and care for his church. And so what I want to do is sort of ask a few questions. The first question I want to ask is, who are the elders in the Bible? Now, you see it right here in our, look, look at chapter, uh, chapter 5, verse 1. Peter says, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. And so that's a really long introduction. But what Peter is saying is, 
I exhort you, the elders. I want to come back to the title, but notice what he says, as a fellow elder. So this is Peter, the apostle, who views himself also as an elder, and he's also a witness of the sufferings of Christ. In other words, he's saying, I was there. I was there when Jesus Christ suffered, and I know why he suffered. He suffered that he might purchase a people for himself. He suffered by laying down his life as the good shepherd to rescue his sheep. And so Peter knows this and all of that is back there. And he says, I'm, a, I'm, I'm also a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. In Peter's mind, Jesus isn't finished with just saving the church. He isn't finished with preserving the church. He's going to be finished when he comes back. And until then, we're in this posture of just waiting and waiting. And that's the, the backdrop, right? Peter says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. So here's a question. Is this a one-off reference to elders? Or is there a bigger principle that sort of bursts from all of Scripture that kind of shows that one of the ways that God will lead and care for and advance his church, it's actually through the work of elders. Now, here's what I want to do. I want to, you don't have to turn here. I'm going to call out some verses and read parts of them, but I want, I want you to feel the weight and the gravity of what Peter, uh, what the, all the authors of the Bible are saying. Here's the thing. I don't think elders is a New Testament concept. That's the first premise, Right. I think this whole idea of having elders, and, and I know some of you, when you hear elders, you instantly think old people, right? And, and that, that's probably true, older people, right? But I think it, it also, it's also an office. It's also a title. It's also a name to a certain amount, a certain group of people in the life of a church who I think Paul says and Peter says will have a significant uh, role in the shaping of the church. So in Luke chapter, uh, Luke chapter 7, when the centurion servant is ill, you notice what he says? He says he went to the elders and he sent the elders to go and get Jesus. And so when the elders of Israel went to go get Jesus, they brought Jesus back to the centurion. And the centurion, when he got there, that's a, that's, that's, that centurion is just a, a, a military ruler. So his servant is sick. He calls the elders of Israel. Hey, can you guys go get Jesus? Jesus comes. He listens to the elders. And when he gets there, uh, the, the centurion servant says, hey, you don't even have to come to my house. You just say the words and he's going to be healed. And you know what Jesus says? I have not found faith like this in all of Israel. And you know who he's indicting? He's indicting the elders. He's indicting the people of Israel in that point in time where here it is, this unbelieving Gentile believes enough in the Messiah that all Jesus would need to do is say a word. That's not the only place you see it. You see it in, in Acts, in Acts chapter 4. And, and this is after Jesus has been crucified when Peter is standing before the scribes and Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and Alexander, that Peter, listen to what Peter says in Acts chapter 4, verse 8. Peter responds to the rulers of the people and the elders. You were supposed to be the builders, but the builders that you rejected has become the stone. In other words, this whole idea of the, the, the elders, these, so think about this, that when the Old Testament is closed and that period of waiting between the New Testament, that's when you have the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the Essenes. That's when all of these S-E-C-T-S kind of sects kind of come up and they assume leadership in Israel. But guess what never goes away? 
the role of an elder from all the way back to Exodus 24, when Moses goes on the mountain to, to seal the covenant, God says, Moses, go get 70 elders with you. And so this whole idea of the elders, it's not just a New Testament thing. It goes all the way back. Even in Jesus's day, Jesus, Jesus was working with or around elders. And so now when you go to uh, Acts chapter 14, this was a normal practice for the Apostle Paul, that he would go and strengthen souls of the, of the disciples, and they would appoint elders for them in every church, right? In Acts chapter 18, when Paul is, is in Miletus about to uh, go to Rome and be, be killed, he calls for the Ephesian elders. In Titus chapter 1, he says, Titus, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town. In, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, he says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. In Hebrews chapter 13, he does not use the term, but the idea is there, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. In James chapter 5, is anyone among you sick? Let him call the elders of the church and let them pray over him. In other words, it doesn't matter who, what New Testament writer it is. It doesn't matter if it's a church plant or the church is in existence. It doesn't matter if, if Paul is preaching to the, the, Gentile, the Gentiles and Peter to the Jews. It doesn't matter what city that one of the common practices that you see in the Bible is that where there is a gathered group of believers, there is also a gathered group of men and leadership. That's just the Bible, right? Old Testament and New Testament. And here's the thing. That word is rarely used in the singular. Matter of fact, it's used in a singular in our text where Peter says, so I exhort the elders as a fellow elder, right? It's used in 2 John and 3 John when John writes himself and acknowledges himself to be the elder. And in both times, whether it's Peter or the apostle John, all of the scholars are saying, no, these are leaders in the church. And so here's the thing. It's rarely used in the singular, which means that one of the ways that God will care for and govern the church, it is not through one man being everything to all people. It's through God giving and entrusting leadership to a group of men. Right. And so when you look at, at, at so what are the qualifications? I'm going to work through some of them. Some of them are in Acts 20. Uh, where Paul goes to the Ephesian elders and he says, the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. And so that's the first thing. This whole idea of being in leadership in a church, this is not something that we do on our own. This is something that the Holy Spirit sets apart to be overseers, right? That's the first thing. The second thing is what Paul says in 1 Timothy 3, if anyone desires this office, he desires a noble thing. That's the second thing. Set apart by the Spirit, you're saved and you're set apart to do this thing and you desire it. You so love the local expression of God's people that this warmth and this affection is, is, is sort of rising up in your heart to stand in the gap and to lead and to care. So set apart by the spirit, there's a desire to do it. And then he goes through a list of qualifications, right? He says he must be above reproach. He walks with integrity. He's the husband of one wife, right? That he, he's faithful and deeply in love with his own wife, that, that he's not a ladies' man, that, that when a man has the reputation of being a ladies' man and he is in the position of being in leadership, Paul says, wait a minute, brother, you got to check that. You sit down and you let somebody else who knows how to love his own wife be up front, right? 
He goes on to say, right, if he must be sober-minded and self-controlled and not easily angered. His judgment is not easily impaired. There's a steadiness about the man, that he's respectable, that when you look at his life, it speaks of respect, that he's hospitable, right? That, that is on the list, that he is one who practices hospitality, that, that he is one who opens his home and opens his life. And when I say he, I don't mean just him alone, because I think for me to practice hospitality, like my wife has to be on board with it, right? So I think there's an element in which some of this, this is what the couple will end up doing together, but he's a hospitable man that he's able to teach. That doesn't mean that he'll be the preacher up front, but he is a guy that when your life is falling apart or you're trying to figure out God's wisdom or you want to know what it means to be a believer, he is a man who can sit down with you and open this up. He is a man. It's not about eloquence. It's about the ability and the desire to rightly divide the word of truth that he's not a drunkard, that he's not violent, that he's not quarrelsome, that, that, that he's not always disagreeing just to disagree, that, that, that he can't be reasoned with, that, that he never sees himself as wrong. That, that It's one of the most humbling things about this is that, that the office of an elder is a way of humility, that he manages his own household well, that he, he can't be a recent convert. And the final test, says Paul, is that he has a good reputation amongst outsiders. And so if we sent a news article saying this man is standing for the office, that when his coworkers got it, it would make sense. That when those who worked under him, they would view him as a fair and generous and humble man. Now, here's the thing. That's a that's a really, really high list of things. And here's the thing. Not one of those things on there is reserved exclusively for elders. If the elders are the only ones in the church faithful to our wives, we got a problem, right? If the elders are the only ones in the church who are practicing hospitality, we're ceasing to be the church. If the elders are the only one who aren't quarrelsome, do you see that this list of qualifications, it's not like God has this, this, okay, for you people over here who are not elders, you live this way. But if you're going to be an elder, this is the qualifications. That's not how it is. That, that these things that God is commanding and is encouraging in the life of this, the leaders of the church, this is the, the outworking of Christian maturity. That's what it is. It's the outworking of Christian maturity. Well, what makes it different? One, it's a man. Two, set apart by the spirit to do it. And three, the desire. Now, I'm not putting before you perfection. That there are moments when I don't, I don't lead well, right? There are moments when I am easily angered. I can say that for every single one of the elders, that there are moments in our lives where we don't live up and there is grace and there, that's where the good news of the gospel is. But, but on my best day, I desire to love my wife. I desire to lead well. I desire to control my temper, right? And so I don't want to sort of imbalance this thing, but here's the thing. Think about how important the plurality of leadership is. I've shown you in the Bible. Think about this. You think about a church and its denominational affiliation, then typically what's important comes out in the, the denomination's name. So if you come out of a Baptist tradition, I guarantee you, you may have at one point 
argued with someone over the mode of baptism. No, we don't sprinkle. No, we don't do this. We don't do this. Why? Because this, the, the Baptist part of it is it's concerned with the mode of baptism, right? I've worked with Pentecostal people, right? I've had students in our ministry at Jackson State who were Pentecostal. And, and we would get into arguing, right, over Acts chapter 2. Because I don't speak in tongues, then I'm not a Christian. And so I'm arguing with this dude who, dude, you're barely 17, right? You know, anyway. <laughs> and he's telling me I'm not a Christian. And I'm like, no, I don't speak in tongues, but man, I know Jesus. I know that. But here's the thing. The moment you wave the Pentecostal banner, guess what, guess what that means? That means there's an emphasis on Pentecost and the outpouring of the Spirit. And so when you go into any Pentecostal church, then guess what's going to be important, right? The spiritual gifts. That if you come out of a Methodist church, you might not know it, but the Methodist name, it comes out of the methods of holiness put forth by the members of the Oxford Holy Club, right? And if you come out of a non-denominational church, guess what? You're still holding up a banner. You're saying that we're not like any of those people, right? And guess what? In the name Presbyterian, I know it's foreign to some of you. You want to know what it means? Just the name. It's the same word that we get elder from. All the passages I just read. It means on the surface. Led by a group of elders. Now, I know we have our theology, we have our confession, we have all this other stuff. But if you just look at the name Presbyterian, that is what it means to be led by a group of elders. And so when you come in here, that's what you're coming apart. You're, you're walking into that. We're saying from the door that one man does not run the show. One man is not the pastor and everybody else sort of listens to him. That's not it. You got 14 pastors. You got me and you got... 13 other men, and we all are laboring, God willing, to care for you and to love you. It's not a one-man show. That's how important the elders are. That's who, who they are. Now, the second question I want to wrestle with who, is who they're not. Now, I know in, in one sense I'm exhausting the office and the practice of the church, and I'm honoring that, but it, it's also important to remember who elders are not. And simply put, we are not Jesus. And that's, I think, that's really important. Because I think at times people can feel like that. But that's not the case. Like, like we're not Jesus. And so I, I think it's important to hear that because it's the reason I had Zach read from 1 Corinthians chapters 1 and chapters 3. You have these men who were in church and who were leaders. Peter, who he calls himself an elder. Paul, who makes a practice of establishing elders. And so you get these, these, these important godly men that God used to build the church. And then what happened in Corinth? Well, I follow Paul and I follow Apollos and I follow Cephas. And then Paul says, wait a minute, wait a minute. The last I checked, Paul wasn't crucified for you. Matter of fact, the last I checked, you were baptized into the name of Paul, Right. He goes on to say that who then is Apollos and who then is Paul and who then is Peter? He says, we're nothing but servants. He says, Apollos watered, I planted, and, and God gave the growth. In other words, you, you see what's happening? Paul himself is humbling himself and the office by saying God uses men, but at the same time, those men are not the chief shepherd. And that's exactly what Peter does. Look at what he says in verse four. And when the chief shepherd appears, 
you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Peter makes up a word right here. That word chief shepherd, it's not even used anywhere in the Bible. He takes two words and combines them together to try to wrap his mind around how much more glorified Jesus is as a shepherd than they. So already he views himself as an under shepherd. And that's the chief shepherd who's coming with the unfading crown of glory. Then look at look at look, look at also verse one. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. So right there, when Peter calls himself an elder, you know what he's also inviting? He's inviting us to, to look into his life. And we know Peter was nothing close to being like Jesus. I mean, he was, but he wasn't Jesus. He was the one who denied Jesus three times. He was the one in Galatians chapter two, when Paul went, when Paul was, when he was eating with the Gentiles. And then when the Judaizers came, he withdrew from them. Right. He withdrew from and Paul had to call him out. You are not living in step of the gospel. And so here's the thing that, that, that if you were to ask Peter or any of the other elders that, that, that how are we to view you? That yes, the position and the office is important, but make no mistake about it. You aren't Jesus. Matter of fact, you can see the fallibility of elders in, in 1 Timothy 5, and I think Paul holds these things in attention. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in teaching and preaching. And then go down to verse 19, and do not admit a charge against an elder except on the witness of evidence of two or three witnesses. You see right there? The high. Let him be worthy of honor. And the low, he might sin and fall and fall bad. And if that happens, make sure that you have witnesses who can corroborate that story. But behind all of it, I think Peter is unpacking the humanity of our elders. And I think these first two points, they warn us, right? They warn us on the one end from making too little of the office. And on the other end, they warn us from making too much of the man. That all of, our, all of the elders here were, were servants of the Most High God. We're servants of the under shepherd, of the over shepherd. And so when you're put in shepherding groups, I don't necessarily think it matters who the human agent is. I don't want us to be like the church at Corinth where we're deciding which guy we want over us, right? I think the, the, the part of this passage that I want to press in on us is having the eyes of faith enough to see that behind the work and behind the men, God is at work. And we can be free in our humanity to shepherd with the gifts that God gives to us individually. The third thing I want to unpack is what have elders been called to do? Now, here's what I love about this text, that when Peter goes down the path of explaining what the elders are to do, he turns to the use of metaphor to do it. Now, this is really important. So for me, the king of metaphor is Andre 3000. Some of y'all know who that is and some of y'all don't. So, so Andre is uh, a, one half of Outcast, right? And so uh, they studied Andre and Andre, I mean, when you did dissect his rhyme schemes and his patterns, he's probably in, he's in my top three all time, hands down. But he's a master of metaphor. So I'm gonna give you uh, two examples and then I'll uh, kind of unpack metaphor and show you why I think it's really important in this passage. So Andre has a, a song, it's kind of old, but he talks about when they first kind of made it as outcasts. 
and he tries to go to the mall and he tries to go to the mall and he runs and this guy who went to high school with him runs up on him says man I know y'all paid I know y'all got bukus of money blah 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 where you live what you driving right and so uh, this is in the rhyme this is what he says he says uh, he says I replied I've been going through the same thing that he has true I got more fans than the average man but not enough loot to last me to the end of the week I live by the beat like you live check to check if you don't move your feet, then I don't eat. So we like neck to neck, right? You hear what he does? I see. You hear what he does, right? He could have given him this long, drawn-out discourse on like, hey, actually, if you don't buy my CDs, then I don't eat. So we're like neck to neck. He could have said that, hey, you live check to check, and you know what? Kind of, I, I got to make beats every week, and I got to write every week. But instead, he kind of chooses to say, wait a minute, let's think about it. You live check to check, and I know you know what that means. Well, guess what? I live beat to beat. You need to check at the end of the week, I need to beat it to the end of the week. And here's the thing. And if you don't move your feet, then I don't eat, so we like neck to neck, right? What is he saying? He says, really, man, my success is in your hands. If I don't make music and you don't buy music and you don't like my music, then I'm better, I'm, 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 we're the same. That, that metaphor, he uses the, these metaphors, right? Here's another image of marriage being like a spaceship with no rearview mirrors. They dip, right? Now think about that, right? Think about it. If, if I'm up here trying to tell somebody about marriage and monogamy and all of this stuff, I can give you my long answer. But here he says, look, it's like a spaceship. Have you ever seen a mirror on a spaceship? No, they don't have mirrors. They don't look back. It's all about moving forward. And that's what he's saying. In marriage, it ain't no looking back. It ain't no going back, right? He uses the spaceship metaphor, right? His other dude, big boy, he has, he has a, a say, I'm cooler than a polar bear's toenail, right? Now, I can sit up here and talk to you about how cool I am, or I can just say, man, I'm cooler than a polar bear's toenail. And all of a sudden, you think about a polar bear, and you think about him being on ice, and all of a sudden, you're like, oh, I get it, I get it. You know? I could say that Floyd Mayweather and the guy last night are swimming in money, right? The image, right, the metaphor, the metaphor, swimming in money is communicating something, right? Here's the thing about metaphor. It is so powerful because it takes this thing that, is, that, that we know about. It takes this thing over here that we, we, can, we know what this is, and it takes this other thing over here that we're not sure what it is, and then what, what do we do? We say, well, look, we know this, and therefore, this is like this. So if you know this, then this helps you understand how to do this. The Bible says it. The Lord is my rock. Now, God is not a rock. But if you've held a rock, if you've thrown a rock, if you've hidden behind a big rock, then it makes sense. The Lord is my shield, right? The Lord is not a shield physically. But it's the metaphor. It's taking this shield that we use in battle and we hold it up and it stops us from getting hurt. And what the psalmist is saying, the Lord is my shield. He is like that to me. What about their? All right, here's another one. Their hearts turn to water. When the Israelites are about to fight, their hearts turn to water. And so all of their courage just seeps away. You see how the Bible uses metaphor? 
as a teaching tool to help us lay hold of something that might be abstract and to walk away from it with a deeper understanding of that thing. That's exactly what Peter does when he talks to the elders. He says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. And when the chief shepherd appears, in other words, he goes from what is concrete over here to what is abstract. And he says, let me borrow an imagery that you, my first century hearers, would know of, right? He says, shepherding. The elder, you're like a shepherd. And the people, they're like sheep. And just so that you don't get, get out of line, there is a chief shepherd above every shepherd. That's the image. Now, why would Peter use that? Because when they found David, guess what David was doing? Tending to his father's sheep. When they found Moses, guess what Moses was doing when he stumbled upon the burning bush, tending to lambs? What I mean, I could give I could go on and on. When when Israel came out of Egypt, what did they come out of Egypt with? A lot of cattle and a lot of herds that, that, that what did Jacob do for a living? He was tending to Laban's flocks that Abraham had flocks and herds that, that, that all of a sudden when you look at Peter, he drops this metaphor on them because they would have known exactly what it meant. That type of lifestyle was so important to him. And so when he tries to unpack the role of a shepherd, I mean, of an elder, he just says, shepherd. And all of a sudden, the lights would have gone off in their first century hearers. We raise animals. My daddy was a shepherd. Look at my Bible. I see shepherd and sheep. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want, right? That you see all of these images that just, 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 just come to the forefront of their minds and so they would have known exactly what Peter meant. And so in our text, there's literally one verb, and that's the commandment to shepherd the flock of God. And then the rest of it, you should probably put by right there. So in other words, shepherd the flock of God. How will we do that? By exercising oversight, by not being domineering, by being examples to the flock. In other words, the way though the rest of that sentence lines up, the only verb is shepherd. And everything else he's doing is telling us how to be shepherds. And the two main words, oversight, an example. Big picture, direction, charting the course, protecting, right? Big picture. And then being an example, being close enough to the sheep so that they can hear your voice, close enough to the sheep that they can see the way you live your life and pursue Jesus. Peter's given him this big picture view of shepherding, oversight, see it, see the vantage point, see what's coming, and also be close enough to them that they can see you and imitate you. And so here's the thing about all metaphors is they all break down, right? Love is like a spaceship, but in a lot of ways it's not, right? It's not taking me out of the atmosphere. My love, I mean, you could probably come up with that and make a clever song about you take me out of the atmosphere and it would probably sell a million, you know. But at, at some point, all metaphors break down. But here's the thing. I think in our culture, we would rather have a list of do's and don'ts. Well, this, it's this and it's this and it's this and it's this. And what Peter says, no, I'm giving you a metaphor, an image. And I want you to turn it, turn it, turn it, look at it, revisit it, 
What does it mean to shepherd? You're going to probably have to do some feeding. You're going to have to probably do some watching. You're going to probably have to go get some who stray away over here and you got to pull them back, right? That you're probably going to have to fight off things, right? Like, like you, you could, we could sit here and do an exercise for hours about all the duties that would come up. And I think that's the point of a metaphor. It's not meant to nail down precision. It's meant to open up before us limitless possibilities, right? And so the, the second thing he says is that it, it's not just what the elders are to do. He talks about not under compulsion, but willingly, not for shameful gain. So this is the motive of, of the elder, not to make us powerful or strong or to get money or to profit off of the sheep. No, there's eagerness and joy. And so here's a way, right? There are a few ways to get at what, is, what are we called to do. One is to say, okay, let's just look at pictures of a shepherd. They got one picture on the show, right? You look at that, right? That's what they would have gone through in their minds. And they would have been able to deduce from something, not, not a still image, but to walk out and to see shepherds. And they would have been able to unpack what that role meant. All right, that's enough, Jimmy. Thanks. You can visit with someone, right? But there's an even better way. And the better way to unpack what we're called to do is to view ourselves as sheep, to view ourselves as being redeemed by the great shepherd, to view ourselves as being loved by the one who gave himself for us, to view ourselves as being the one who have been pursued and tracked down by the relentless grace of God. To, to remember what it's like when Jesus says, I know my sheep and I know them all by name and I will not lose any one of them. That, that on, on one level we can go and look at pictures, but I think what Peter's pressing us to do is if we want to unpack our role as elders, go back to our relationships with the chief shepherd. That that right there is going to show us what it means to care for the flock. And so as we have shepherding groups, I want to invite freedom, freedom, absolute freedom from the men shepherding to be their real selves and to work with their real Jesus and to think about the way that Jesus has loved them and saved them. And I'm thinking, hey, brother, just let's let's go. It, it, it's a metaphor. It's 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 an art and not a science. Fourth question is, why have elders been called to do this? On the one hand, I don't know why. I don't know why God would risk his glory and put it in the hands of men. That's really risky. And it's really, really heavy that the God of heaven would invite anyone, anyone into this work of caring for his people. But here's the thing. He's been doing it from the beginning, from the beginning of time when God made the world. He made Adam in his image and he told Adam rule and have dominion and, and, and plant crops and have kids and be fruitful and multiply. And so it makes sense to me that if God is, is commissioning and, and giving Adam this authority over creation, that when God builds the church, that when God starts to, to, to save and, and, and to sanctify his people and to save his people, it makes perfect sense that God himself would also invite men into that work. Think about how God saved us. He entrusted our salvation into the hands of a man filled with the spirit. 
but none are yet flesh and blood who bleeds just like us, who dies just like us, who cries just like us, who gets tired just like us, right? That, that think about the image that when God wanted to save the world, I'm going to entrust this into the hands of a human, my own son. Here's what we call, he says, our theology of church leadership is informed by the choice of God to grant royal prerogatives to his creatures. We can call this the divine preference of human agency. The God of the Bible passionately seeks humans to enlist in his mission, risking it regularly in their hands. On one level, it's just because this is what God has decided to do. On another level, I think it's the vulnerability of the people. And I think that's why Peter continues with that theme. Notice what he says in, in verse 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And he's saying that in the context of appointing elders. He's saying that in the context of saying that after you have suffered a little while, Christ himself, Christ himself, not a man, not mediated through the work of men, but Christ himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. But until then, until Christ does this in glory, that right now there is a roaring lion out there. And one of the ways that God will protect and keep his people is by raising up men who will step up, and lead. It's the same thing Paul says in Acts when he's talking to the uh, Ephesian elders. He says, I know that when I leave, the fierce wolves will come in, right? It's the same image, right? So I think on some level, this is why God has given elders to the church. He wants to and he desires to for his own glory. That's number one. But number two, I think the vulnerability of the people. And I think number three is to compensate for our humanity. That one of my favorite proverbs is that if a man is about to go to war, he had better surround himself with an abundance of counselors. If you have something this weighty, like calling war, where you might have wives receive their husbands back and they're not alive, where you have children who grow up without a father because he's, he's been killed in battle. If you're going to make that decision, that severe decision that you're going to affect not just a soldier's life, but everybody's life in their way, you had better not make that decision by yourself. You had better have a council of men around you. And here's the thing. There's a story. Uh, there's the, the West Wing, there's, a, there's a, uh, an, um, an episode where the president's personal doctor is killed, and the president really loves him, and, and the, he's a new father, and then he shows the president a picture of his new kid, and then he's, he's, he's in the military, and he gets summoned to go overseas to the Middle East. When he goes to the Middle East, the plane is shot down, and everyone on the plane dies, and the whole show is about the trauma on the president, and the president is saying, I want to blow him up. They cannot touch America. They must pay. And he goes on and on. We're going to show them a lesson. We're going to blah, 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 blah. And so he walks into this meeting with all of his women and men and the generals and experts of law and all of that. And he smokes his cigarette. He says, we're going to blow them up. And at that point, he starts to get pushback. 
pushback from this lady over here who's worried about publicity, pushback from this general, pushback from all of these humanitarians, and all of a sudden his plan is shaped that had he made that decision on his own, out of his passions, it would have been the wrong decision. But it was when he put that out there and they wrestled and toiled together that he was actually protected from himself. I think the Lord gives us multiple counselors in a church to protect the church from any strong one person who would usurp everyone So from the close right here, how do we respond? I love what Peter says. He says in verse five, likewise, you who are younger, and I think he's talking about the flock. I, think, I don't think it's just an age thing. I think he's talking about those who are in the fold under the care of the elders. Be subject to the elders. In other words, he's saying humility. Pray for and trust. Allow them to lead that they've met these qualifications, they feel called to do what they are after your best interests. Encourage them to lead. But that's not the only person in the relationship that is to be clothed in humility. Look at what Peter goes on to say. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. I think Peter is really zoning in on that dynamic of having leadership in the church and what that dynamic can do and what Peter says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility. That that is the way forward. And so what does it mean to be elder led? To have men who are nominated by the flock, saved and set apart by the Holy Spirit with a desire to shepherd his body, who meet the qualifications in the word, who will labor to care for his local church, who do not replace Jesus, but serve on his behalf in the shepherding of his sheep for his glory, where humility defines the relationship between the flock and the leaders. So a few closing things. If the Lord is calling you and you're a member of this church and you're a man and you desire to lead in this way, uh, just let me know. I would love to meet with you and talk about what it means to shepherd in the life of Redeemer. Second thing, when our shepherding groups kick off, remember all of this. I know we've said a lot, but just remember all of what we've talked about. And finally, in James chapter 5, James says, if any one of you is sick, call the elders and let them anoint you and pray. Let them anoint you with oil and pray for you. It's one of the things that I love to do in our session meetings when we do have members who call and we do anoint with oil and we do lay hands on and we do pray. But I love the emphasis there that, that James does not imagine that the elders can read everything that's going on. He actually says, hey, if you're sick, hey, call your elders. And so you see the, the mutuality there? It's not just that we're doing this, but there's another side of it where if you're in these situations, reach out and call, right? So God bless you, I'm gonna pray for us, amen? Father, we praise you and thank you for the way that you care for your church. What a high privilege and calling it is to invite men like our elders and our officers and our deacons and myself and our staff to care for the bride of Christ. It is a really high and sobering and beautiful uh, work that you've called us to. I do pray that you would give us grace 
uh, to do this moving forward. Lord, I pray for um, our shepherding groups as we kick them off in the coming months that you would uh, allow us to have the right opinion about it, that we would see it as a good thing, that we would be humble and patient with one another as we work through it. I pray that we would all find joy in this. Father, I pray for those who are without a shepherd, who have not met the great shepherd. I do pray that they would stop me and, or anyone here and hear the good news of the gospel. We pray these things for Christ's sake. Amen.